Turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Samuel. We read chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1. Our text is taken from the middle of the chapter, verses 9 through 18. We won't reread them, but we pay careful attention to especially those verses of the chapter. We hear the inspired, infallible word of God. Now there was a certain man of Ramoth Zoatham of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Penina his wife and to all her sons and daughters portions. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had shut up her womb. And her adversary also provoked her sore, for to make her fret, because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year, when she went up, to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. Then said Elkanah, her husband, to her, Hannah, why weepest thou? And why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? Am not I better to thee than ten sons? So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh and after they had drunk. Now Eli the priest sat upon a seat by a post of the temple of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul, and prayed unto the Lord, and wept sore. And she vowed a vow, and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid, and remember me, and not forget thine handmaid, but wilt give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life. And there shall no razor come upon his head. And it came to pass, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli marked her mouth. Now Hannah, she spake in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she had been drunken. And Eli said unto her, How long wilt thou be drunken? Put away thy wine from thee. And Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Count not thine handmaid for a daughter of Belial, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken hitherto. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked of him. And she said, Let thine handmaid find grace in thy sight. So the woman went her way and did eat, and her countenance was no more sad. And they rose up in the morning early and worshipped before the Lord and returned and came to their house to Ramah. 
And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Wherefore it came to pass, when the time was come about after Hannah had conceived, that she bare a son, and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. And the man Elkanah and his, all his house went up to offer unto the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah went not up, for she said unto her husband, I will not go up until the child be weaned, and then I will bring him, that he may appear before the Lord, and there abide forever. And Elkanah her husband said unto her, Do what seemest thee good, tarry until thou have weaned him, only the Lord establish his word. So the woman abode and gave her son suck until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, with three bullocks and one ephah of flour and a bottle of wine, and brought him unto the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. And they slew a bullock and brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as thy soul liveth, my Lord, I am the woman that stood by thee here, praying unto the Lord. For this child I pray, and the Lord hath given me my petition which I asked of him. Therefore also I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the history of every person begins with a mother. The stories of men and women who grew up to be exemplary, often have outstanding mothers whom God used for their good. One remarkable individual in the Bible is Samuel. Our first introduction to Samuel is not as a learned man who is a leader in Israel, but as a child whom God had given the privilege of personal revelation. He was the child prophet in Shiloh. And behind Samuel was his mother, Hannah, one of the two wives of Elkanah. We're introduced here to the history of God's people during a very, very challenging and difficult time. The time of the judges, as you remember, was when every man was doing what was right in his own eyes. A tragic time period. Men and women set on pursuing their own will, their own ambitions, and not concerned or interested in God and in His Word. The devil was having his way, and idolatry abounded. There was mixed marriages taking place between God's children and unbelievers. All kinds of corruption characterized the church. Hophni and Phinehas were evil men, and yet they were allowed to be priests in the tabernacle. But they were carrying out sinful activities, guilty of fornication and theft and all kinds of other evils. But Jehovah God preserves his church. And that's the truth that's on the foreground throughout this history. God's faithfulness in raising up leaders for his church. God had preserved a remnant that was faithful to him. And we see evidence of that in the family of Elkanah. As weak as the family was, as sinful as Elkanah was in taking to himself another wife contrary 
to the clear instruction of God in Genesis 1 and 2 regarding marriage, yet we have a family here who's making their trip yearly to Shiloh in obedience to God's commands. We have a man who's a Levite. Elkanah is a Levite who's living in the area of Arimathea, which was in the New Testament. And he is bringing his family yearly to the tabernacle. Evidence of their love for God is in the passage. Now this passage teaches us not only the faithfulness of God in preserving his church, but the way in which God does so. And the fact that Jehovah God gives children to his church. And many questions rise in our mind. How are we to view children? Hannah had a strong desire for a child, for a son. Why did she have such a strong desire? Is that something we also ought have? What is our calling with regard to children? And through this passage, we see the thankfulness that we owe unto God for this precious gift. We see how important it is to view our children as those who are entrusted to us by God for a time. Our calling to train them up to the utmost of our power as the families answered this morning. Facing the spiritual struggles, the physical challenges, committed to God in the training up of these children and doing so with a view to also returning them to the Lord, knowing that God is the one who's pleased to build His church in this manner. We look this morning at Hannah's prayer. We know, first of all, the deep sorrow that characterized Hannah. Secondly, the bold promise that Hannah makes, really a vow. And then finally, the remarkable trust that's evident. We read in verse 7, she wept and did not eat. Again in verse 8, why is thy heart grieved, is the question that Elkanah comes to her with. The Passover was to be a joyful celebration, but for Hannah, it was not so. As Hannah would attend that Passover feast, there was sorrow and there were struggles for her. Verse 5 identifies the reason for her grief, but the Lord had shut up her womb. We know of many in the Old Testament who experienced that struggle. Sarah, Elizabeth, Rebecca, Rachel... Hannah falls into that same struggle. Barrenness causes a woman's heart to ache. It's a struggle that many in our day also find themselves involved in. And they can easily relate to the ache that was present in the heart of Hannah. And Hannah, as often is the case with a woman who's barren, lived in a lonely trial. Hardly anyone understood. Hardly anyone could relate to her. And that was heavy on Hannah. And that's evident also from the passage. Now the reference, but the Lord shut up her womb, is a word of comfort to us as God's children. Conception, we confess, is a wonder of God. It's in the hand of God's sovereign providence. And as difficult as it is, as challenging as it is to stand before God and to acknowledge His will in our lives, God alone 
is the one able to work conception. And he's the only one who keeps. Now we live in a day and age where men and women think they're in control. And they seek to control either having children or not having children according to medicine and other efforts. But God makes clear it's His hand that accomplishes these things. And as God's children, we submit to His sovereign hand. He's the one who had caused this trial in the life of Hannah. Now, as I stated, there's the hope and the comfort also of the child of God. Our afflictions are not by chance. Our afflictions come from the sovereign hand of a loving Father who works all things together for our good, as difficult and challenging as that is for us. And so instead of resenting God in our trials, we turn to Him and we lift up our hearts to Him and we cry out to Him. And that's what we find Hannah here doing. That God who's proved His faithfulness to us who's shown His love by sending us a Savior to save us from our sins. That God who had delivered Israel out of Egypt through many mighty wonders. The God who delivers us from our sin and brings us to know the forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. This God is holy. This God is good. And this God also ordains our sorrows and our struggles for a purpose. A purpose to serve That salvation that He's purchased for us. And He's filled with mercy toward those who are brokenhearted, toward those who struggle. God does not seek to destroy us in the trials that come our way, but to save us through those trials. Hannah testified of that in chapter 2, verse 8, in her prayer. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust, And lifteth up the beggar from the dunhill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world upon them. We see God's sovereignty here in the struggles that Hannah experienced. But God was using the plight of Hannah to serve a far greater purpose as is seen in this history. God raises up men and women For the good of his church. God loves his church. And out of love for his church, God is the one who raises up covenant seed for the well-being of the church and for her preservation in the midst of the world. Jehovah God, in his faithfulness, making use of mere men and women to raise up covenant seed for his glory. God was raising up a faithful leader in Israel. Now we find in this context sympathy and compassion on the part of Hannah's husband Elkanah. In verse 8, even though he seems a bit self-centered, he is concerned here with regard to Hannah and we see the love that he had for Hannah. It's obvious Elkanah loved Hannah very, very much. And her inability to bear children did not interfere in his love for her. If anything, it gave him a greater compassion and a greater concern and care for her. His presence with her, his acts of love toward her, had to have been an encouragement. And we're reminded here of the importance of those acts of love 
of our presence toward those who undergo trials. There are times we don't know what to say. Sometimes we also say the wrong thing, as likely Elkanah did here when he said, Am I not better to thee than ten sons? But we're reminded here that the most well-meaning of friends and family, even though they may not know what or how to say, they may not know how to interact with our situation and circumstance, yet are there for us. And their presence is an encouragement. And our presence with them. And leading them to see the hand of God. And to know the wondrous love of Jehovah. He is able to do for us what no husband, what no friend could ever do. He's able to give peace. He's able to give comfort. And he's able to give strength in the midst of the circumstances of life. Tension between the two wives becomes evident here in the passage. As the one had children, the other didn't. We read in verse 6 of her adversary. Although that adversary is not identified immediately, it becomes evident in verse 7 and 8 that that adversary was the one who was going up to the house of God with her. It was the other wife of Elkanah. It was Penina. Now in this too we see a strange arrangement of God's providence. On the one hand, there's a woman fitted by God with spiritual gifts, capable and able to raise up children to his glory, whom God doesn't give children. Then on the other hand, there's a woman who's cruel, and yet God gives her children. And one wonders, how are those children then going to be equipped and trained by her for the well-being of God's glory? But God reveals his wisdom again. As God sovereignly ordains all things, revealing his goodness, his mercy toward his children, and working all things for the good of his church and leaving the wicked without an excuse. Now Hannah experienced those struggles from Penina. Again, Penina had children, it says. Hannah did not. And we read in verse 6, And her adversary also provoked her sore, for to make her fret, because the Lord had shut up her womb. That's something we have to take to heart. We can sometimes be those adversaries that provoke another. And I especially think as children, as young people, is it not easy for us to poke and to mock and to ridicule perhaps another? So easy it is for us to do that. And what do we do? We cause hurt. We cause intense grief. We mock them because we have something they don't have. Penina had children. Hannah didn't have children. And so Penina here is poking, is prodding, is mocking, is ridiculing. Sometimes we're on the receiving end and we know how painful that is. The stings, the stabs that someone else is bringing against us. And we suffer. But we realize too, the one who's bringing those stabs, the one who's being cruel, being a bully... That one is going to suffer. That one doesn't have peace because that one is not walking in a way that's in accordance with God and His will. That one is walking like the devil would have them to walk. And the way of the devil is not the way of peace. It's not the way of joy. Penina was not walking here as a child of God. Now sometimes 
We're cruel to others. We don't even realize the pain, the suffering that we employ. And again, when it's pointed out to us, we need to repent. And we need to be kind and show love toward those whom God puts on our pathway. Acknowledging God as the one alone who makes us to differ. Now God used this affliction for good. And that's an encouragement for us. There are times when we're being mocked, we're being ridiculed, we're being picked on. What do we do? Cry out to the Lord. And we trust that God is able to work also that together for good. What did that adversary do to Hannah? She drove her to prayer. She drove her to her knees so that Hannah now gets on her knees and brings her prayers to the Lord. This is the blessed fruit of trials in the lives of God's children. While others may be cruel to us, and while they may mean evil, God uses it to draw us closer to Him in that time of need. Think of Psalm 142, verses 4 and 5. I looked on my right hand and beheld, but there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. I cried unto the Lord. I said, Thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. God is our refuge. God is our encouragement. And when others don't understand, when others are not able to assist us, we have a loving Heavenly Father who has given to us a high priest who has been touched with the feelings of our infirmities, who knows our suffering, and to whom we come by faith. Now there's something more in this history and in the life of Hannah that caused sorrow. Hannah's trial was particularly heavy as that of a Hebrew woman. To have no children during the time of the Old Testament marked out a woman as one who was dishonored by God and unworthy of the fulfillment of God's covenant promise. God's promise to Abraham was, In thee and thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That blessing now would not come through Hannah. There was the maternal desire to have children not only, and that desire can't be dismissed. A natural desire on the part of women is to have children. But from her prayer, it's evident that there was more going on here. Hannah was motivated to bring forth a child who would be a leader in Israel. She saw the lack of godly leadership. She saw the great need for the church to have those who would be godly leaders within the church. And she mourned over that void. Hannah desired to bring forth not just a child, a child of the covenant who would represent the cause of God and would be used for the good of God's church. Now how is that evident from the text? It's evident from this. Verse 11 identifies Hannah's specific request for a man-child. Now that doesn't mean that boys are more important than girls. Daughters are as important to the church as sons are. But what was it that was behind this prayer? The Messiah was coming. And the Messiah would be a man. He would be a male. And the women were looking for the coming of the Messiah. They were praying for the coming of the Messiah. And they were praying that they would be the mothers of such ones who would be that Messiah. Now things are different for us today. 
we rejoice in the birth of children with a view to the coming of the Messiah. And we rejoice in the birth of sons and daughters as a wonder of God's covenant. As God establishes His covenant with believing parents, God does so in the line of generations. And so God's children desire to bring forth children into the church of God who will represent God in the generations to come. Stalwart sons, beautiful daughters, who will live as spiritual leaders within the church of Jesus Christ. Living as members of Christ's church, representing God in the midst of the world. And beloved, we see that wonder in our congregation and we give thanks for it. God has worked in our hearts a desire for children. God has given us a love for children. We see families with many children having more children. We're thankful that we see generations of children. Third and fourth generations within our congregation. This is a wonder of God's grace. Jehovah God causes the church to grow, to marry in the Lord. He blesses the church with children who are trained up in the fear and honor of God. And He blesses His church in that now that church continues in her generations for the glory and honor of God. The Bible talks about this wonder of God to a thousand generations. What a glorious calling God gives to couples in the church. The world mocks. The world ridicules. We receive what Hannah received from Penina, from the world, from co-workers even at times, even family members sometimes. They make fun of families, make fun of large families. But the church of Jesus Christ views children as a marvel. Children sitting with their parents in church. Our thought process is different from that of the world. Our goals are different. Our sights are set on the church, the well-being of the church, and the coming of Jesus Christ. And we know that Jesus is not going to come again until every last one of his children are born and brought to the wonder and knowledge of their salvation. And so we bring forth children in obedience to our covenant, Heavenly Father. And we look to God and His faithfulness to raise up children, to continue to preserve His church unto the coming of Jesus Christ. Our hope in the midst of the trials and struggles of our life, especially in connection with the guilt and shame of sin, is that Jehovah God, the same God who revealed His love in giving to us a Savior in Jesus Christ, is the God who will preserve His church. And who will preserve his witness in the midst of this world. And who will continue to do so by working the wonder of conception and childbirth. And we stand before a God who is able to do marvelous things. A God who not only is able to take a barren womb and open it, but a God who is able to work conception in the womb of a virgin. That's the God whom we serve. Nothing is impossible with God. Hope thou in God. We look to that God. And that's the godly example Hannah here provides for us. Hannah turned to the Lord in her distress. The Lord who was able to do far above anything that we could desire or know. Who not only was able to open her womb, 
but also able to give her comfort and peace in her circumstance and situation. And she turned to that God, knowing who that God was, the Lord of hosts. Knowing who she was, a handmaid, a servant of the Lord. Verse 11, O Lord of hosts, that is, Jehovah, who rules all the hosts of earth and heaven. And I'm a handmaid, a servant, not afraid to make known her request to Jehovah. A beautiful prayer. But secondly, we look at a bold promise. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life. And there shall no razor come upon his head. Verse 11. Hannah had entered into the tabernacle and she was praying to herself. Verse 13 talks about how that was happening. Her lips were moving, but nothing could be heard. Eli sees this. He thinks that she's a wicked woman who's given herself to too much strong drink. Now the fact that he jumps to that conclusion is tragic and gives evidence of what had been going on in the tabernacle during this time period. Men and women were getting drunk in the tabernacle. Fornication was taking place in the tabernacle. And the grievous sins that are taking place in the tabernacle causes Eli to think that the same is going on here with Hannah. Hannah corrects him in verses 15 and 16. She's looking to the Lord. Her cry is to the Lord for spiritual leadership in Christ's church. And she vows a vow according to Scripture. A vow is a sincere promise to God. Now the content of this vow is humbling. This isn't a selfish prayer. This is the most unselfish prayer. She's not wanting children for herself or for her own satisfaction. She took seriously the concern of the church of Jesus Christ during her day. And she sees and knows the urgent need for spiritual leadership. And now she takes that seriously by also taking on the vow of a Nazarite for her son. That's the significance of no razor coming upon his head. You children immediately identify that as you're familiar with the three things especially that characterized a Nazarite. A Nazarite was one who was consecrated to God, devoted to God. And he showed that dedication in three different ways. His hair could never be cut. He couldn't drink strong drink, and he couldn't touch a dead body. There are some cases where an individual took it upon himself. There are other situations where it was laid upon an individual by someone else. Hannah now lays this vow on her son for life. But Hannah included more. She committed to giving her son to the Lord all the days of his life. She desired a child that would be dedicated to the Lord and serve God as a spiritual leader in Christ's church. Again, remarkable, showing her selfless approach to this desire. Not only does God give mothers the desire for children, God also works in them a love for his church and a desire to bring up their children for the good of Christ and His glory, and for the good of the church. Not only does God give the gift of children, 
God also is able to work the wonder of the salvation of those children. God does not only just give the first birth, He also works the second birth. God withholds from some, not only children, but also the second birth. But God is also pleased to work both in the generations of His children. Hannah was not able to give birth. She was not able to give a second birth to save her son. But Jehovah God is the one to whom she looks, knowing again He is able to do what she could never do. And she recognizes that this child would belong to the Lord. Later on in verse 28, we find that. Therefore also I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. She's not saying this child's mine, now I'm going to lend him to God. She's saying literally, I have granted him to the Lord. The idea is Samuel already belongs to God. But now she would do all to encourage him in the pursuit of the will of God. And that's what we as parents are called to do. The children already are God's. And now our calling is to encourage them in the pursuit of the will of God as they live their lives for His glory and for the good of His church. We think of Psalm 127 that makes clear that our children are not our own. Lo, children are in heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is His reward. Our children are born into the church. They're born into God's covenant as God's children. And God gives believing husbands and wives children as an heritage of the Lord. Now what's a heritage? A heritage is a property or a possession that descends to an heir. So that God passes to parents a possession, their children. And these children don't just keep their name. They don't just continue their families. They're not merely the next generation of believers. These children are entrusted by God to preserve His covenant in the generations. They are God's reward. Often we need to be reminded of this truth. When our children are not obeying as they ought, we need to remember this. When our children tie us down so much that we can't do the things we want to do. We want to travel. We want to do things. And we can't because we're tied down because of our children. Remember, these children are entrusted to us by God as His reward. When life becomes burdened, Weighty responsibilities fall upon us as a result of the children God has entrusted to us. We need to be reminded. These children are the joy of our lives. These children are God's heritage, whom we are to be thankful for and train them in His fear. They're entrusted by God to us for a time. In the midst of the challenges of motherhood, in the midst of the sorrows and struggles as parents, We remember God and His faithfulness. God gives children to parents. And He does so, so that those children can be raised to be given to spouses, if it be God's will. Where they will in turn raise their children in the fear and in the honor of God. God gave peace. That's a remarkable thing. Hannah receives peace in her soul as she prays this prayer. A peace that rises from communion with God. Her motives are godly. Her desire is good. Her submission to God 
entire. Forfeiting the status that a child would give her in society, forfeiting even the status a child would give her in her family, she opens her heart to the Lord with regard to this great need for spiritual leadership in Israel. Now, beloved, is this a promise we should make? We reject all ideas of bargaining with God. God is not like us, one whom we barter with in order to cut agreements. Hannah is not bartering here with God. Her child already would be a Levite. It would serve eventually in the tabernacle of God anyway, according to the law of Moses. But two things are distinct here. First of all, her son would serve from youth. And secondly, he would be a Nazarite for life. When we present our children for baptism, in essence, we as parents are making this commitment. We're standing before God with this promise on our lips that we will do our utmost to raise our children in the fear of God. That our children belong to God and we bring them up in His service and for His glory. God's lent them to us for a time and He gives us a weighty calling, a weighty responsibility. And as parents, we are called to do our utmost. And we're humbled by that. We spend ourselves in that task. This task requires of us tremendous effort. We need to remind ourselves continually of this calling and of this responsibility before God, not only, but also His faithfulness to preserve His covenant. That's the purpose for making a vow before God. We admit we're weak. We can't do this. And therefore, we look to God for the strength to be faithful. God, strengthen me. Give me the grace that I need. And by God's grace, parents press on in their labor. They do so out of thankfulness to God for what God's done for them. And on our deathbed, we're going to look back with sorrow, with regret. We're going to realize all our failures things we could have done, the things we should have done, that we ought to have spent more time with the children that God gave us. We do our utmost. We leave the rest to God. Repenting, trusting that God forgives us and is faithful to use weakest means to fulfill His will. And thankful for that which the blood of baptism points us to as well. My sins. My sins with regard to my attitude toward my training of my children, also are forgiven. We will train those children, not for us, but for God and for His glory. And we train those children to honor God and to give Him glory. God granted that prayer. And God gave Hannah the grace to keep that promise. Let's not minimize that. Can you imagine how difficult this had to have been for Hannah? God not only heard her prayer, and no doubt she had been praying this prayer often, but never with the encouragement of a prophet of God. And now, this time, Eli says, go in peace, according to verse 17. Strikingly, Eli didn't even know what her prayer was about. But on the basis of God's promise, he assures her of the answer to her prayer. And Hannah believes. She goes her way. We read now, she did eat. In verse 18, her countenance was no more sad. God's not even worked anything in the way of conception yet. And already, the fruit of prayer and the fruit of her promise before God is peace. 
Such is the wonder of God's grace and God's goodness. But God also works in her faithfulness to keep that promise. A remarkable trust is evident here. Verse 28, Therefore also I have lent him to the Lord. Samuel, at the tender age of between three and five, is now deprived of a normal family upbringing, and he's left to the temple. Now, some are critical and insist this could not have been an act of love on Hannah's part. She should have cared for him longer until he was grown up and able to take on the responsibilities that would be necessary of a Levite. But the answer to this question, beloved, is found in the unique nature of Samuel. Hannah is not called to be an example to the church of motherhood in Israel and of the rearing of children as much as an example of a mother giving her children to the Lord for his service. The training that she employed for the first years of his life cannot be minimized, however. Imagine if you knew you had your child only for three or four years, what you would impress upon that child. The time you would take. She didn't even want to go up to the tabernacle. Just stay here at home. I need to spend every hour of the day of the time that I have with this child in order to teach this child as much as I can about God and about His glory and about His calling. And never do we underestimate what young children are able to know and understand and learn. We teach them the doxologies. We teach them the Lord's Prayer. We teach them the Psalms. And God works the wonder by which they grow in their understanding of who God is, the greatness of His glory, the wonder of His works. They understand by God's grace. Because God not only gives them life, but He gives them that new life, the regenerated heart. This situation stands out as unique in the Bible. There would be no other one called to be a Samuel. No other woman called to be a Hannah. God ordained this unique situation, this unnatural separation of mother and child for Israel's good. And God worked the grace by which she was willing to part with that child who had opened her womb and provided her so much joy. God works in the grace of parents, the willingness to give their sons, their daughters, to spouses, to watch their children move out of the house in order to start families of their own or to go on their own in order that they continue in the manner that gives God glory. God works that grace of self-denial and self-sacrifice. God also worked the grace of preserving Samuel. Shiloh was not an attractive place for a young man or a boy or a child to grow up. Hophni and Phinehas were evil men. Sin was rampant. And yet, she trusted God to be with Samuel and to preserve Samuel from all the evils of Shiloh. We bring up children in an evil world, a world that's given over to sin, and we trust Jehovah God to preserve and to keep our children for his glory and for his honor. And God proceeds to bless Hannah with three sons and two daughters, the rest of whom she raised at home, as we find later on in chapter 2, verse 21. Hannah's endurance in prayer and self-denial in the face of prosperity are wonders of God's grace. And for that, we pray. Confident that God had heard her prayer and that everything was in the hands of her covenant God. Confident that the child God had entrusted her 
was in God's hands, and therefore all would be well. Casting our cares upon God, trusting God and His faithfulness to lead and to guide and to give peace. Now, beloved, often our prayers aren't answered in the way that Hannah's was. Our dying child doesn't live. The husband, the wife, doesn't believe. The child continues wayward. The child is not conceived. Yet God hears the prayer. God knows better than we what's necessary. He works grace so that through tears we confess, God is good. We trust in God. And God not only gave birth, He gave the second birth to little Samuel. God is pleased to work a wonder of grace. He not only gifts us with children, but then He works the wonder of salvation in their hearts. This is a wonder of His goodness and of His mercy. It's that which causes parents continually to stand in awe and to live in thankfulness. We trust God. And we look to Him for His gracious work in the hearts and lives of our children. We pray. We pray. At times with tears, fervently, entrusting the souls of our children to the hand of our loving Heavenly Father. We discipline them. We discipline them again as a mother. We sorrow over them. And yet, we leave them to the hands of Jehovah God. Teaching by our example, teaching by our instruction, impressing upon them the greatness and glory of God. Trusting God to lead and to guide according to His good pleasure. And we continue to do that as a church, beloved. The days are evil. A great need there is for pastors and for leaders in the church not only, but also for godly wives of those leaders. We trust God to continue to raise up leaders for His church in these evil days. To work in the hearts of our sons, our daughters, that they live unto Him and show forth His praise. That they're willing to be mocked and ridiculed. And that that mockery drives them to their knees in prayer and works in them a deeper trust in Jehovah God as they go forward for His glory. And beloved, in all of it, let us note this finally, the joy that characterized Hannah. Chapter 2 is the prayer that Hannah raises after experiencing this emotional experience of leaving her son behind at Shiloh. Chapter 2 doesn't contain sorrow. It doesn't contain depression and desolation. It's not filled with self-pity. There's no regret. There's no boasting in self. We have a prayer and a song of thanksgiving and praise that gives glory to God. Through the prayers, through the struggles of child-rearing, we cast ourselves on the mercy and the grace of God. As sinful parents, with weaknesses and with shortcomings, we battle against those short fuses. We regret when we lash out in anger. We're selfish. And God directs us to the wonder of which our baptism again is a picture. You are washed. You are cleansed. Your sins are forgiven. God has not only given you life, He's given you a new life that's from above. And He's taken us into fellowship with Himself in Jesus Christ. He's embraced us with a bond that cannot be broken. And He will keep and He will preserve His own by His grace. And He will strengthen us 
for the labor to which he calls us. The godly parent experiences joy and thanksgiving as he and she walk by trust in God. As they consider it an honor to be considered by God for this glorious task. As they see God's faithfulness in preserving his church and raising up men and women who love the Lord and who continue as a godly witness until Christ returns. Beloved, may that be our joy as we trust in Jehovah God, not only as the one who provides us with children, but also the one who works the wonder of regeneration in their hearts. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank thee for the great wonders thou hast performed. We pray for these couples that have presented their children for baptism, strengthen them, and strengthen all of us in the calling thou hast given. And may we go forward as those who trust in thee, knowing thy faithfulness, thy goodness, thy mercy, and thy compassion that fails never. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.